Hello, and welcome to this second in a series on artificial intelligence. Uh, today we are joined, that is Carl, myself, and Rose, and we are joined by uh, Runa Hiya. and Demetra, Hi. who are uh, both situated at the Leverhulme uh, Center for Future Intelligence. And so uh, just as an introduction, Runa and Demetra, could you each share a bit about yourselves? Yeah, I'm um, a researcher. Um, I have a PhD in philosophy, study philosophy of science at the University of Durham, and now I'm at the Center for the Future of Intelligence in Cambridge. Um, and what I work on here is mainly um, questions around the ethics of artificial intelligence. And I'm in particularly interested in issues that lie at the intersection of ethics and uh, epistemology. And I'm actually a student in Cambridge at the moment, so I'm doing my MPhil in philosophy um, at Cambridge, and I'm also a student fellow at the Leverhulme Centre for the Future of Intelligence. So my work mainly is in um, the philosophy of mind and also the philosophy and ethics of technology, and this term I'm working with Runa on a paper that tries to establish a virtue-based framework to think about questions and the ethics of AI. Very nice. And, and just a, a follow-up question. Uh, what attracted you to this field of study? You know, the, look, so there, there are two answers here. Okay. So I'll give the, I'll give the one that sounds nice first, which is that um, <laughs> what I'm interested in. So when I first considered st studying philosophy um, way back when, um, what I was interested in is science and the role it's playing in society. And I really wanted to, I thought, well, I want to understand what science is and how it works, because it seems to be really important for society. And so I thought, well, philosophers should know about that. So I wanted to study philosophy. And that's really what's been attracting me all the way through, thinking about, you know, if we try and understand science and, and more lately technology and the role it plays in society, hopefully we'll be able to use that to actually um, get something out of it. And so when the job came up um, to start to, to um, work on AI, here in Cambridge, uh, I applied for it and, and got it. I'll give you the second answer now, which is I was finishing my PhD and I was thinking about wanting a job and a career in academia, <laughs> and there was a job I could apply for that I thought I was qualified for, so so I applied for it. And um, so that's that's also part. Of, that's obviously also part of the story. How about you, Demetra? So I guess um, I'm quite early on in my um, career or with with philosophy, but. So I guess I can speak from the perspective of a student, what, what interested me in studying philosophy. Um, there's probably two answers as well, like Runa said. The first, the first kind of unglamorous response is that it was the only thing I was sort of good at and interested <laughs> in at school. And it kind of led me down the path of university and now a master's degree. Um, but I guess when I reflect on it a bit deeper, there's, there's two really core elements of philosophy, which is the creativity of, of doing philosophy and also the competitiveness, because it's all about arguing. You're either arguing against someone or trying to put forward your own argument. And um, they were two things that I was, you know, as a kid really interested in. I was artistic, but also I loved sports. And so the mesh of creativity and competitiveness, I guess, came together in a way that made me enjoy philosophy, which I didn't really realize at the time. But now I look back, maybe that's yeah. what led me down this path. Um, yeah, and then I guess also drawing on what Runa said, philosophy gives you such wide scope of investigation, like you can do philosophy of science, but then you can also do philosophy of art and philosophy of technology, like we'll be talking about today. So it's, it's, a, it's a lens through which to explore many different um, big questions. Interesting. 
It's a great answer. I really like the the fact that you say, you know, this competitive element. It's, it's very true. There is a lot of discussion. It's also the basis of all these different disciplines anyway. So you always have something to discuss about, even though yeah. you don't know a specific discipline that well. You can always uh, come up with a good argument, I think. And I think that's quite a nice thing to add. Yeah. So... Um... Rose, do you want to ask this this last question for the, the Yes, I do, actually. I have a great question. So this is just a random question that me and Carl came up with. But do you think that AI will take over the world? What do you think, Demetra? <laughs> well, I could, um, I could give a provocative answer and say it already is happening. I don't know. It, it is happening in the sense of, yeah, we might not have machine consciousness yet. And maybe we don't have super intelligence, but AI is everywhere, right? So it's in our smartphones, it's in our homes and home speakers and such like. So maybe it's, I don't know, maybe I'm being hyperbolic, but um, <laughs> or maybe I'm not sure. Runa, what do you think? Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, <clears throat> so I think, so let's let's suppose what we mean by taking over the world, we're really thinking about like the Matrix scenario, right? Like a uh, sci-fi. Like yeah, a the sci-fi scenario. Yeah. Either, either, either a conscious AI or um, if you're familiar with um, um, Bostrom's work, he has the concept of a super intelligence, which might have no consciousness, but might just you know, be pursuing a goal with, you know, complete determination and uh, an incredible amount of computational power. So there's the sort of the jokey example is the paperclip maximizer. So you imagine a, a, a artificially intelligent controlled factory that's been told, just produce as many paperclips as you can as efficiently as possible. And, you know, before you know it, it's um, converted the entire uh, earth into a paperclip factory and you know, harvest all the humans for the iron in their blood and so on. Um, that's of course a. That's probably not the scenario. That's if it's going to happen. That's going to happen. But it's just an example of how, you know, if you pers- if you pursue something with that kind of determination, how wrong it could go. Um, okay, so do I think that's going to happen? I can't rule out that it's possible. I think there are some interesting arguments. Um, it's not my. It's not what I think about the most myself. But I have colleagues who, you know, take this very seriously. I guess my own worry is that. Before we get to that stage, human stupidity is going to do something much worse with AI systems that are very powerful, not that kind of powerful, the sci-fi level, but just powerful enough that if you combine it with human stupidity, it's going to go really wrong. I mean, we're already installing AI systems in the nuclear deterrent systems to try and be able to react much quicker if you think you're being attacked. Um, I'm really worried about that because in the past, when there have been instances where we've avoided nuclear war because a human decided they didn't believe what the computer system was telling them and they didn't want to start a nuclear war. Um, So I'm really worried if we're going to give too much responsibility to systems that can't um, bear that load. So you're more worried about the future of human intelligence <laughs> than the future of artificial intelligence, I guess. Yeah, yeah. But, but both <laughs> you work at the Center for the Future of Intelligence at the Lieberhum Center at the University of Cambridge. Um, can, you, can you tell us a bit about what you do? What does the Center do? What, what's your role there? And uh, what are some different projects that are currently uh, being run? So um, I've been at the Center for, for some years now, so I can probably speak to that. Um, so the overall mission of the center is quite simple. It's just to make sure that artificial intelligence, however it ends up developing, has the best pos- possible consequences, full stop. That's the mission. Uh, now, how is the center proposing to achieve that? Um, it's wanting to use academic research. Um, so it believes that you know, 
really rigorous academic research, but done in a way that's sort of oriented towards solving this practical problem is going to be part of the, the key to solving it. Um, so we have a number of different kinds of research projects. It's very interdisciplinary. We have people working in everything from computer science and machine learning engineering through to philosophy and ethics over to um, film and media and literature studies. It's quite a broad scope of, of projects that all in their different ways tries to, to achieve this. Um, so maybe and about how many people work uh, at the center, if I may oh. ask? You know what? I always I'm always struggling to lose count. Um, look, I'll just look how many postdocs and um, researchers we have. We have one, two, three. Yeah, maybe fifteen postdocs. About that, plus then a number of faculty who are um, more loosely affiliated or only have part time uh, positions there. Right, because Dimitri, you also work there. And what is your role exactly in the center? So I actually don't work in the centre, but I have a student position. So I'm um, my the name is a student fellow. Um, so that's open to students um, on a, on research degrees. And since I'm doing an MPhil, which is a master's by research in philosophy, I was able to apply this year to be a student fellow. Um, and really, what I do as a student fellow, I'm not. Um, I don't work on the actual research projects at the centre, so I'm not publishing alongside the researchers, but I attend lots of the discussion groups and um, attend other people's presentations of their research and listen and so that it helps my development, hopefully for the future, and also sometimes try and ask a question that might help someone else, although um, most of the time I, I'm um, just listening in awe really <laughs> at everything that goes on and trying to soak it all in. Maybe a, a question here to begin is what do we mean when we're, we're talking about artificial intelligence or AI? How, how do you define this very broad um, term? Hmm. So there are a couple of definitions out there. I think there are many good ones. Um, there's so Margaret Bowden has one where she says it's whenever you get an artificial system to do something that would otherwise require a mind. And she says mind rather than intelligence because she points out that a lot of the things we call artificial intelligence is things like computer vision. And we wouldn't necessarily say that you have to be intelligent to be able to have vision. You definitely, we would normally say you need to have mind. Um, a slightly more detailed definition is one um, from um, Stuart Russell and um, Novi gave in their textbook. So they have sort of four definitions. So it's um, either making an artificial system um, behave the way that humans behave or make them behave the way that humans should behave or make them reason the way that humans reason or make them reason the way humans should reason. Uh, so it's a bit technical, but again, the idea is that mimicking either human behavior or mimicking human thought and reasoning and either just trying to pr uh, produce a copy or a model of how we actually reason. So that's a more descriptive project or trying to build systems that can do it better than us, that can actually follow what, uh, how we rationally ought to reason or, or ought to act. Would that be similar to strong AI versus weak AI or general versus um, narrow AI? No, no, that, that cuts no. across this. Okay, no. So, so uh, the, the narrow and, and wide distinction is more to do with how many different contexts it can do that in. So a narrow AI is one that 
can solve one specific type of problem. So it might be, you know, an AI system that can um, predict the weather, the weather tomorrow. We might build a weather model that can automatically gather data and predict the weather tomorrow, but it can't do anything else. Whereas a wide AI is one that has the autonomy to solve many different types of tasks, which is a, a lot more difficult to do. So, so kind of picking back up with the values, um, and I, I suppose a, a question that arises here when we think about values is on the ethics uh, side of things. So, for instance, in um, kind of classical philosophy, not applied to AI necessarily, you have different forms of, of value systems such as um, consequentialism or utilitarianism. Um, not trying to equate the two for those who will judge me on that. Um, <laughs> you have also deontology, which um, uh, roughly follows the philosophy put forward by Immanuel Kant and, and those who wrote kind of in, in his likeness. And, and you also have um, virtue theory, which uh, Demetra is something that you've also had an interest in. And, and virtue theory, uh, of course, follows some of the work um, put forward by Aristotle, although I'm not sure he would call it work. <laughs> Maybe it was just um, <laughs> thoughts and, and uh, perusings um, in, in his day. But you have these different systems of, of how we can consider the world and, and what is considered to be kind of an appropriate action to take. And so the question here would be, what do we mean when applying some of these kind of value systems to AI? And yeah, and also kind of biases if that's related. So it's a broad question, but perhaps allowing you to take it as, as you will. Mitchell, you've been thinking about this a lot recently. I think you should, you should start by right. sharing your thoughts. Yeah it's, uh, yeah, it's difficult to know where to start when we think about the ethics of AI because a lot of the time, a lot of what we think about ethics of AI and a lot of what is published um, for a general audience at the moment anyway on ethics of AI doesn't necessarily talk too much to the three philosophical approaches that you've just mentioned, Carl. So, um, which is not a bad thing at all. You know, we've got to be um, dynamic and modern in our approach to these problems. So you do, when, when you look at AI ethics papers or frameworks, you see a lot of words like fairness, um, bias, um, these terms, which don't necessarily crop up in the um, traditional frameworks. What I've been looking at is how we can draw on more of the theoretical side of the philosophical frameworks, namely virtue ethics, which is what I've been looking at, to see how we can frame these questions about AI systems not to displace the the frameworks that we've got today which which use these terms like uh, fairness and bias but just to kind of support them in a way that's drawing on ethical theory that we know works to, to some extent obviously you're going to get your proponents and opponents on both sides um so i guess that's what i would start by saying uh, runa maybe you could add a little bit in here yeah sure um so maybe to flesh out that so how AI ethics has developed has been very, it has not been driven by philosophers to begin with. So there's been a lot of activism by people coming from within computer science and from in the, um, also the industry research on AI. There's been a large push to think about the ethics of AI, also from policymakers, um, lawyers have been working and legal scholars have been working on these issues um, for a good time before a lot of philosophers got involved. 
um, with some honorable exceptions there have been philosophers who've been interested for a long time so in some ways you know myself included a lot of philosophers have come to the game sort of a little bit late they're sort of already this very well developed uh, debate going where people have been identifying problems um, such as the one on bias there's been some very um, high profile cases where uh, journalists actually have discovered that an AI system was biased so, so one famous case was a system called um, Compass which was used a lot in the US um, when making bail decisions so what it does is you give some some details about the defendant and then it gives you a risk score how likely is this um, this defendant to commit new crime if they are released on bail and um, it turned out that this system was systematically biased uh, against black defendants so um, it specifically that it had about twice as often made a mistake in the direction of thinking someone was high risk when they in fact did not commit new crime when it was a black defendant as, as when it was a white defendant and vice versa so twice as often predicted a white defendant as being low risk when they in fact did go on to commit new crime so it was quite a high profile case um, and um, computer scientists started thinking about well um, is it possible to remove this this kind of bias that seems a problem um, there's some interesting mathematical results that show that if you want your system to have certain kinds of properties you can't satisfy all of the different plausible definitions of bias you might have uh, all the positive plausible definitions of fairness you might have and so i guess where that then leaves the philosophers is to try and think about you know we have this trade-off we can't all the things we might want to have a system do we can't have so that's where it seems like some philosophy about well which of these values should we then prioritize or how do we strike a trade-off if, if you know if we want to have a bit of both that's where i think philosophy has something to add here and especially where more classical philosophical thought could be useful for thinking through those kinds of trade-offs and trying to come up with some recommendations that are actually well-founded in a way that you don't necessarily get from computer scientists because they're not trained to think about ethical problems they, they prefer not to if they can <laughs> and what do you believe if you could make a recommendation or which value should we implement in an ai and do you think it is even possible to have an ai system that wouldn't even have values at all and so would this whole question wouldn't even make sense okay yeah so so uh, I have thoughts on this, so I'll say something, and maybe Dimitra can chip, chip in afterwards. Um, so, I don't think we will avoid systems being value laden, um, and if, if at least, but if by value laden we mean, you know, they're going to have an impact on the world, whether we think those impacts are good or bad, and so whether we think the out the you know the behavior or the outputs you're getting out of an AI system are the right ones, well, that's going to depend partly on value judgments. And so even if we try not to install any explicit values into the system, it will still behave in ways that we will have to think about whether that's the right way. So value judgments will always be relevant when we're designing AI systems, even if we don't, in some sense, give those values in any direct way to the system. Um, how do we then deal with that? I don't think we should wait for philosophers to figure out whether consequentialism or utilitarianism is true uh, or virtue uh, ethics is true for that matter <laughs> um, i mean we don't have the time in any way i'm, I'm not sure philosophical ethics is in the business of finding the final truth at least not at least not in our lifetimes so i think what we need to think about instead is yes come up with the best you know think through 
the different ethical arguments we can as best we can using the, the tools of philosophy, rational thought, but also think about it as a political problem, as a problem uh, to be addressed using uh, political institutions. Uh, I think you know, democratic institutions uh, would be important, um, maybe also global institutions, trying to come up with ways um, with systems and institutions where we can agree some of these questions, or at least agree on some compromises that all of us can live with, even if we might have our different philosophical background theories that, that we believe is, is the true one. So that's sort of my high level uh, answer to that question. Yeah, I had a thought whilst you were speaking that one thing I think that, that's problematic here is, is the question of knowledge. I, I don't think we, ha we don't have infinite knowledge and I'm skeptical as to whether we ever will have infinite knowledge, even if we have um, AI systems that can you know, crunch numbers and ideas far faster than our human brains can. There's always gonna be this question of, um, you, never, you never have ultimate knowledge of anything. It's, and so maybe this is, a, this is a time for epistemologists and philosophy to also start working on these questions. The other thought that I had was, we are seeing AI systems crop up everywhere. So when you go online, um, your personalized uh, messages that come to you in targeted advertisements are often the products of uh, machine learning and AI systems. So I think, and, and I'm not sure there will be a time anytime soon where we're not having personalized messages sent to us. Uh, and we've got to be aware of the impact of that. So I might be receiving different adverts to the three of you. Um, they might be political adverts, they might be commercial adverts. There, there are so many things that we need to be aware of. And that's where I think the value of um, critical thinking comes in because we can, if we are all equipped with these skills which will allow us to interrogate information that's given to us provided to us by AI systems um, maybe we can get to the truth of things a bit quicker um, I don't know so that's my thought about just day-to-day -day life how to live with AI systems in day-to-day -day life and how to maybe rid ourselves from the value ladenness of AI systems with critical thinking nice nice and uh, by epistemologists, you refer to those who kind of investigate the source of knowledge, yes? Yeah, I guess How so. we come to know things, yeah. Right, yeah, I haven't done epistemology in a few years, but I guess that's who I'm referring to. And especially those epistemologists who deal with um, moral outcomes. Hmm. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I was just reminded when you were speaking of um, Professor Floridi at Oxford, who uh, thinks about how we have had past periods within philosophy. Um, we have had an epistemology kind of period, um, a, a period of aesthetics, even in, in kind of the medieval period. Um, and, and his suggestion is that now we are going into the philosophy of data, where kind of information and how it is utilized, because we have so much information, um, is going to be a, a, a key kind of question going forward. So that's what your kind of comment reminded me of when, when thinking about all this information that uh, AI has access to. And, and the question is how will it use that data? Um, yeah, and some, some kind of pose this question of will they use it for good or for ill? But of course, it, you know, it can be a much more mundane question of, um, you know, the AI using data kind of effectively or, or ineffectively. There's very stupid AI 
um, <laughs> machines. Uh, and and yeah, I, I think there's a broad scope of, of information to be had there. Um, but thinking now to, to kind of the future outlook, I suppose my question is, what are some remaining questions that you are, are, are thinking about now or desire to think about in the future? Yeah, I, I think I can say a bit. So <clears throat> what I'm working the most on at the moment, um, um, the question of explanation and understanding in relation to AI systems. Um, so this is another thing we haven't talked about so much today, but um, you know, alongside uh, the question of bias, one of the things that people have been pointing out is that AI systems, in particular those that are developed on the basis of machine learning, can become incredibly complex. Um, so you, you can have um, models where you have, I think the latest one that was released had more than a trillion uh, separate parameters, mathematical parameters. This is a model where, with you know, more than a trillion different um, parameters. They all interact in very complex ways. Um, even if the company shows us that model, which they don't always do, um, we wouldn't be able to make much sense of it, at least not just looking at it. So there is a big question of how do we create systems that um, that we're able to understand in the right ways. There are some worries that if we can't understand how a system is making decisions, um, it's, uh, well, in fact, it's a little bit unclear why that's supposed to be a problem, but there are many people who have the intuition that that's supposed to be troubling. And so this is, one of the uh, projects I'm looking on at the, at the moment is um, what does it mean to understand a system in the right ways? Mm -hmm. um, I'm particularly interested in AI within the medical sphere. So I've been thinking about one of the things we care about in medicine is informed consent. It's a well-established ethical principle that you know the doctor can't just start pumping drugs into your body without at least asking you first and not just asking you, but telling you what he's going to do and what are the likely consequences going to be. But if this is a a treatment that's been proposed by an AI system and we're not actually sure what it, why it is it thinks this treatment is a good idea, it might be difficult to obtain that kind of informed consent. Or at least that's what a lot of people have worried about. So so I'm trying to think through what exactly is it that you need for the purpose of informed consent and why is it that such a complex AI system could be a challenge here. Wow, that sounds fascinating and also very necessary. Yeah. When will... Um the paper be published or are you not necessarily working on a paper yet on this topic? I have um, a few, I have a few different papers that I'm working on. One of them um, will hopefully come out at some point um, when it's going to be available. I'm not quite sure because things have been delayed um, due to um, the COVID pandemic, but that one looks at, uh, that one looks more at how relying on an AI system might impact the ability of clinicians um, to understand the reasoning that they're going through because if they're offloading parts of their reasoning onto a system and then just getting the answers back they're losing understanding of their reasoning process and then i have a couple of papers um, on the topic of informed consent and uh, more generally explainability in medicine that i'm working on at the moment and uh, yeah <laughs> when, when they will a be lot done of different things okay yeah. and um if i understand correctly you're not necessarily trying to unravel this black box necessarily, but you are looking at it from a kind of philosophical, ethical side of what is necessarily needed in order to understand it, but not necessarily unraveling um, yeah, no. what is missing. Well, 
Yeah, that's exactly right. So I think this metaphor of the black box can be a bit unhelpful sometimes because it suggests that, oh, if we could only open the black box and look into it, then we would have solved the problem. Um, and that's not really, I think, where the problem is. Um, I mean, we, we rely on lots of systems where we don't know many things about them. You know, you can drive in a car. You don't necessarily need to know everything about a car. You just need to know the right kinds of things and understand the right kinds of things in order to um, and it, that depends on what, on what you want to do with your car and what kinds of support systems you have. In a similar way, I don't think there's a problem, uh, I don't think there's necessarily a problem with relying on so-called black box algorithms in medicine, um, but we do need to think carefully about what kinds of information do we need to be able to obtain. And um, I think particularly important for the question of informed consent or um, questions about what kinds of risks um, for instance, will a, will a patient be incurring if they rely on the recommendations of, a, of the system? Beautiful. It's a bit of a roadmap you're working on. I nearly want to call it. It's very exciting. And Dimitra, what are you, so you're working on the virtue ethics. Um, um, yeah. Is that the only paper you're working on or what are other yeah, interests? So, yeah, so I'm working on a virtue ethics paper at the moment. The way that the MPhil and philosophy works at Cambridge is you don't have any teaching. Um, you just do three research papers, one per term. So um, the last term I worked on a paper to do with the philosophy of mind. Um, not anything to do with AI, but I was just looking at how we, it, it's a question in the epistemology of mind. So how we know what each other are thinking and feeling. And I was trying to defend a position which said we can't on the basis that we have some sort of autonomy of our inner mental life that um, uh, the corollary of which stops us from knowing and uh, facts about other people's minds. I haven't obviously touched that since I submitted it in uh, December so that's probably as much as I could say for the meantime <laughs> and then since then I've been looking um, at AI ethics so I've been looking at a few of the papers and um, approaches in the field of AI ethics that have been published by philosophers to date and I've also been looking at um, more classical um, ethical frameworks such as the virtue theory framework so I've been reading Aristotle mainly um, and also some more modern philosophers so um, there's a philosopher called Shannon Fowler who I believe is at Edinburgh at the moment and she has published a lot recently on um, a virtue ethics based approach to AI. Um, oh actually maybe so I, sh I say AI because I'm um, I've got it on the mind at the moment. Her, her framework is more general. So she looks at technologies in general and she's done a little work applying virtue theory to social media. And in her most recent book, she does talk about AI, but more from the perspective of auto automation technologies. So uh, like care bots, which, which haven't really come to fruition yet, uh, but might do in the near future. So, but I'm trying to look at applying this virtue theory approach to AI systems that exist right here and now. And um, yeah, and I guess another thing I could say about virtue theory in this context is that I'm looking more at the conditions under which we as individuals cultivate virtues and not necessarily moral virtues, uh, but just you know virtues of character like being well organized and being friendly um all, all of these things how it affects how we are on a day-to-day -day basis so what i'm really looking at is does ai help us or hinder us um in our pursuit of virtue uh, that's an excellent question yeah beautiful <laughs> and do you think uh, after this research you're doing now 
are you going to delve further into the philosophy of AI or is this uh, also a paper you're going to hand in and turn your back on? <laughs> no, um, I would love to do more work in the philosophy and ethics of AI. I think it's a um, really exciting field. There's obviously a lot more work to be done. And as the technology evolves, we'll have to evolve our um, philosophical and political and uh, moral approaches to AI. So there's, there's I think, always going to be a lot of work with the current trajectory for philosophers and for academics in lots of different disciplines to investigate these questions. Very true. Okay, I think we're going to round it off today. But thank you so much for being in our second episode of this podcast series. And we look forward to hearing from you later, perhaps uh, in preceding episodes. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you to our listeners. And we'll see you next time.